Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Over the course of his 80 years, Charlie Morrow has worn many hats. He's been a child bugler, antenna builder, dream chanter, composer, sound artist, poet, festival organizer, sound installationist, conceptualist, and performer whose creative projects have included healing works, concert performances, pop music arrangements, music and gallery installations, hospital sound environments, large-scale festival events, radio and TV broadcasts, film soundtracks, commercial sound design, and advertising jingles. He's also the composer and producer of this show's theme music. And it is uh, with great pleasure that I welcome Charlie Morrow back to our show to talk about all of these things and, and some of his other recent projects. Hi, Charlie. Good to see you. It's great to see you. I'm glad we could be under the same roof. And uh, should I say also welcome back to BAI because you once produced a show here? Well, I did sections of shows, actually. My I'm not hearing your mic. Is, uh, is there something? Can you hear my no, mic? Uh, no, I'm talking. Hmm. You just turn up your... Uh, make sure oh, okay. Go ahead. Am I... Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm online. Okay. Yeah. Good. Well, I was going to talk about the first things that I did for WBAI were a show called... Yeah, it was a, a show. It was called it's The Soundhead Show. Uh-huh. And I did The Soundhead Show. I did several, like a half a dozen episodes, and they were for children. And the idea of The Soundhead Show was that you were supposed to be able to position your left and right speakers differently for each of the shows like one above each other or one in the next room so the, I played with <laughs> playback on radio you were already playing those kinds of games I was but I, I also s- had political stuff I had the national field marshal of the Black Panthers on my show yeah, well, you weren't only interested in music, although there was so much music. Uh, I didn't mention that you were once a copy editor for the Journal of, of Chemical Physics. <laughs> that was uh, quite an experience. <laughs> but the things that people probably will be more familiar with are names like Art Garfunkel, one of your classmates at Columbia College. Did he introduce you to the commercial music business? Yeah, he did. He um, lot allowed me to take a role in the production of Parsley Sage album. That inspired me, uh, or as my father liked to put it, uh, I was uh, vaccinated then with a phonograph needle. So you added bell strings and a Renaissance keyboard to a few of the tracks? That's it. That was my job. And then you worked as an arranger and live producer for John Hammond at Columbia Records, provided arrangements for other Simon and Garfunkel recordings and for the Rascals and Vanilla Fudge. Right. So did you see your career, your future career, as being in pop music? I, it began to look like that, but uh, my wife at the time did not like the fact that all these uh, pop music gigs involved being in the studio, mm-hmm. often told the wee small hours of the morning, and so I made the decision that I would uh, try to earn my living more from jingles because it was daytime work, and I, I, I don't regret that. You did jingles? Yes. But you also did, got involved with jazz recordings because the theme music for the show comes out of those, those yeah, recordings. Absolutely. Well, I had always maintained, a, I had a lot of friends in the jazz world, and I was myself on the more or less right uh, lunatic fringe with free improvisation on the trumpet and playing conch horn and things like that. But um, mainstream jazz 
was important to the jingle business, and I think that the majority of <laughs> oh, the same musicians who played jingles were were, were session players. Yeah, oh. the uh, bass player uh, Buster Williams who oh. was on your theme music there. Was, I met him through his session work, and uh, I think if I hadn't been working in jingles, I might not have had the same experience because the first time we'd meet then is with the task of getting something done in a fine recording studio. Well, it's, it seems to me you were open to trying everything. You also, in the 60s to the 80s, collaborated with people like John Cage, Morton Feldman, and, and Allen Ginsberg. It's absolutely true. Um, Ginsberg's parents knew my parents in New Jersey, and uh, the, uh, their parent, I got the message that they had decided that their two nutty sons ought to be introduced <laughs> to each other. <laughs> Keep in mind that my parents uh, were two shrinks. <laughs> Well, you you brought a lot of music today. Yes. Should we listen to something? Sure. I think that would be fun. I've been working um, a lot in the sound poetry field over the years, uh, as much with the voice. So uh, let's uh, take a listen to uh, Carlos Santos from our album and from the festivals we did, International Sound Poetry Festival. He was also in the heavyweight sound fight, which is now just being released by a Swedish label as a double LP with a booklet. The booklet is in front of us. Okay. to all of it, but you, you can't write that down on a sheet music, can you? Uh, no, it's uh, usually find ways of doing kind of graphic notation uh, that spells out what that looks like. It's, it looks very nice on the page. Often sound poets are, you know, like concrete poetry, because they, when you see these multiple <laughs> on the page, they uh, become graphically fun. And then you rely on the performer. Performers, all, all, every one of them were good improvisers. They basically took off on an idea. Uh, Carlos is... Uh, Here, tell us about Carlos Santos. Carlos Santos was, uh, is from Barcelona. Regrettably, he passed away a number of years ago. Oh. He reached great public acclaim because he not only had his own theater for experimental performances in Barcelona, he, was, he created the opening of the Barcelona Olympics as a big big event, passing objects around in the audience. And uh, he was part of my heavyweight sound fight as well as the International Sound Poetry Festival. And um, Philip Corner, composer, f introduced Carlos to me. 
and uh, Sten Hansen, who from Sweden, uh, and I were casting around for things to do. We, the first thing we did was the 12th International Sound Poetry Festival in New York. And that was this when you were getting into chanting? Yes, because that comes out of chanting, doesn't it? Comes exactly. Yeah, I'm more of a chanter than as before that. A chanter, not a cantor. Chanter, not a cantor. (laughs) Although, boy, chick. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You did not. (laughs) We just you just took your riff up. (laughs) So, so that came out of chanting. You were the. um, you, you say that um, your work has taken you to two large areas, numbers and the language of non-humans, uh, and both of them derive from chanting. That's true. Can I do a little chanting for you? Sure. And where would uh, that kind of chanting be conducted? What group? What well, groups? In, in an art context, because uh, I started doing experiments, and I became interested in Jewish chanting and uh, uh, American Indian music, and I found it much more comfortable at that point to develop my own method. Because that, that was a time I remember friends of mine who were involved in political music and were playing folk music, and they were told by the people whose cultures they'd picked up, you know, hey boy, don't you have any culture of your own? (laughs) (laughs) And so I decided I would uh, find my own chanting voice and um, and I did. So that's it's 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 all art for want of a better word. And this uh, label um, recital has done an 80 year celebration, Charlie Morrow Chanter, and Mm. you can all look for recital and um, either get downloads on Bandcamp or on recitals a website, and it's got my work from the age of 17 right up through age of 80. Yeah, the earliest chant here is from 1960. Yep. And uh, then uh, the, the most recent one is 1221. Yep. So you've been, has the chanting changed a lot over the years? It, it has. It, um, in the very beginning, I was playing with my... Uh, parents Tanberg uh, tape recorder where you could add an extra voice overdub yourself and so I was more interested in it just for the pure fun of making sounds like a almost a childish child as a kid just like a kid making sounds so I I always have that layer but I've in the meantime gotten it uh, used it in various uh, ceremonies like um, I do solstice events mm-hmm. and so I made sun chants for example so uh, actually could you do you see a file there called uh, sun chant uh, I think so uh, yes okay why don't we listen yeah, to a little this bit this is the theme song of my semi-annual uh, solstice events okay Sun <laughs> 
That is a far cry from Simon and Garfunkel. It is. Were you you were inspired by Navajo love songs? Does some of this grow out of that? Yeah, I think so. Um, my buddy and inspirer, the poet Jared Rothenberg. Mm-hmm. Who you had a long uh, collaborative career with over the years. Yeah, over the years, just through to today. He's in his 90s, and we're still cooking up mischief. But he got me started in this direction because he had worked with recordings of Navajo songs, and he gave them to Jerry to translate. So he'd do a translation of the words and then the, uh, the nonsense Sounds, uh, for want of a better word, and he decided at one point if I if I could maybe create a a group sing in which he could be the medicine man. He could be the guy following the medicine man, knowing the song. Somebody who didn't know it so well, and then somebody who's just faking but wants to sing with the people in the ceremony. So I recorded that, and that four-track tape called the uh, Navajo Horse Songs. Um, then inspired me to start doing the same thing with with English. And uh, the things I do now all come from that kind of, the, as you say, fun with language and sounds. So you're no longer doing things like the jingles that you once did? You wrote jingles for TV ads for Diet Coke, hefty trash bags, hefty, 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 wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Uh, and also take the train to the plane for MTA. People, those are in some people's hit parades in the backs of their minds. Well, um, if, if somebody asked me, I would be happy to write one. <laughs> I'm just sort of a. It's, you do you? It's do you a young you're open to any kind of a. Of course. A, a now, co- recently, I've i wrote a comic chamber opera with 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 uh, Remis in hmm. Finland. And premiered last year, and now it's going to be in this year's uh, Helsinki Opera Summer. And so that was, uh, I basically set it up like a jingle session. All the musicians have headphones. I had one guy who would um, mark off the hours, because it's a story of 24 hours of two ladies who don't get along with each other, stuck with each other in a country house. And every time an hour would pass, this one comic actor who... It's uh, just just a fantastic. He would ring a bell, just like in the boxing match, and we would go on to the next hour. So all of that is the kind of uh, closest to the jingles I'm doing now, using the techniques of headphones and uh, sounds. In fact, actually, we have a Foley guy in there who makes sounds just like an old-time radio, like boots on sand and... Mm-hmm. All sorts of stuff. He's an integral part of the opera. 
My guest on today's London Lopez at Large is Charlie Morrow, uh, who uh, in some ways is a regular on the show because he's composed our theme music and generously given it to us to use as a, on a regular basis. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. And uh, you, as I mentioned earlier, you once did a show on BAI, but aren't you currently producing a podcast? It's true. I'm doing Immerse with Charlie Morrow, uh, which is, starts from Podbean but winds up on Amazon and uh, all of the other platforms. And I interview very much influenced by my host here, uh, Leonard. Uh, I do long conversations. They vary from half hour to an hour. In fact, the first one uh, is almost an hour and a half. Wow. Uh, and they are with people I've done immersive sound project, immersive projects with. I mean, I've always had the sound part. But it started, for example, with the opportunity to talk about Michael Gerzon, who is the Einstein of immersive sound. He died in his, at the age of uh, 51. Um, and his math that makes digital sound very good caught on and it's the basis for most digital sound recording his, his so michael's uh, was the one who was able to create really interesting ways of working with three-dimensional sound called ambisonics or after him mm-hmm. gersonics so and i i had to track him down because everybody who knew him knew him differently he followed jazz musicians and they would Typically, he'd like to hear him at a club, and he'd go down and record them, and then invite him back to his place. And he was famous for keeping you over for a night or two because of the great conversation. So, but no one knew who Michael was, and so that was the first person I chose to, you know, honor because he was the only person who I couldn't record live. He had left in the fifties, but uh, yes, I haven't. Lately, uh, the last one was Peter Schumann of Bread and Puppet Circus. And uh, is that a weekly show? It's twice a month. Uh-huh. And it's all, the, the, the one thing that ties everything together is immersive sound. Yes. Mostly music? Uh, no, it's about immersive sound, which could be natural sound. And uh, actually, a number of the people are creating the visual side, so they're talking about both the visuals and also just concepts. So it varies who you're talking to. Um, uh, Brian Katz is one of the most interesting people we've interviewed lately. He was the one who got me into um, immersive sound when I was outside my studio here on 7th Avenue. And Katz is, uh, has the sound lab at the Sorbonne in Paris. And he had the job of recording at the cathedral before the fire of just doing sound mapping and it turned out that he had from his maps they could reconstruct the cathedral I wonder what happens with uh, as a result of the, the the fire is the sound quality altogether different now well they haven't rebuilt it altogether no. at the moment they're going to celebrate it I'm hoping to distribute that it will be a a show showing what it sounds like theoretically in different parts of the cathedral but it will not have been so if people want to access this, you say there's a podcast, what would they, how would they I think if you look just it look for Immerse mm-hmm. with Charlie Morrow, and I have an exclamation point after the word Immerse. immerse. Yeah. Okay. Well, should we listen to another 
Yeah. Different kind of music? You know, actually, why don't you go down to the one that's Mark Joan? I think that'll be interesting. This is from the heavyweight sound fight. There were three of us in this fight that was at Gleason's gym back in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, Carlos, whom you heard before from Barcelona. Uh, Sten Hansen from Sweden. And me from the U.S. And so we thought that in a boxing match, you always have someone sing the national anthem. This is now Janet Steele singing... Uh, a mashup of the Star, Star Spangled Banner and the Catalonian and Swedish national anthems. Take it away, Janet. That's obviously not what you were describing. We played the wrong track, but it's the what same was that? fight. That was the uh, that was the referee and um, Sten Hansen and me having edit in the <laughs> ring <laughs> in the great heavyweight sound fight, Leeson's Gym, back in the 1980s. But uh, we'll I think now hear the national anthem. Okay. Okay, let's try it now. Or natural 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 anthem. Yes. <laughs> let's get up. Huh? Let's go.
What a voice. Why isn't she more famous? Or is she famous in some parts of the world? I think, uh, I think she's, she could have been more famous than she is. She's a great, great singer. I just don't think she was that uh, you know, ambitious. She sang, I met her when she was with the Western Wind, uh, with the Western Wind singers in New York. They mm-hmm. sang. She's no longer with us? Uh, I th- she's still with us. Uh-huh. Because, boy, she can get up there. She's really got a great voice. I'd love to work with her again. Janet, if you're out there, Mm -hmm. give me a call. (laughs) But meanwhile, that is uh, an—it seemed to work as a national anthem. (laughs) Yeah. The the three different songs all merged well together. They did. That was the Swedish national anthem, is what you said? Swedish, yes. And Barcelona? Barcelona is part of Catalonia, so wow. it's the Catalonian anthem. And well, the United States is a mix of... It's true. And <laughs> how did that occur to you? I don't know. It just was. Uh, it made sense because we would often, when we were jamming, it would sound like we're fighting with each other. So we thought, like, well, let's do it for real. Put it in the gym. And we had a history in the art world of some famous arts artists in boxing matches. Uh, there was a fight with uh, Arthur Craven, who challenged the world heavyweight chi- champion Jack Johnson at the time and was whipped soundly. And then Dick Higgins did a a boxing event at Sunnyside Arena afterwards. And then we were number three. (laughs) Well, so uh, last night you did an event at the... um, at the El, Elmer Holmes Bob's Library of NYU at 70 Washington Square South, free and open to the public. I'm sorry that uh, we didn't do our conversation before that event, but can you tell us a bit about what happened? Yeah, it was a, uh, it was a lovely uh, gathering um, because um, we could have a discussion and we could have fabulous examples in a room that could play 3D sound, which is something that I, I make and have patents in. What does 3D sound mean? Well, we are in a room with 3D sound now. Life right now. is 3D. But as if you were going to make a 3D model of anything, when you make sound, you can create sound that has height, depth, and width. And uh, naturally, since it's sound so that you know the difference, it has to change over time. So you're making music that changes over time but uses all the dimensions in a controlled way. I mean, I like to use the word sound puppetry uh, because uh, that's what we're doing. We're you know, moving the sound around within an air environment. But no strings attached. <laughs> Forgive the pun. Oh, no, no, I like it. I, I love that. You'll I'll, use I'll, it? I'll, I'll, I'll quote you. <laughs> But puppetry. Puppetry. Well, in the sense of working with the illusion, you could create the illusion of a person who was, in in 3D sound, could be the size of a flea. They could then be changed in scale to the human size, and then they could become a giant, and we could then disperse their sound. So the idea of scalability is very important in 3D sound. It's that shape-shifting that you can do once you have all those dimensions in the sound. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. 
org, and maybe uh, we'll play another l- excerpt of something from that was composed by Charlie Mara, our guest today. Shall, 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 see, 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 see
Music from Charlie Morrow. Uh, what was that, and what was the source of it? The source is a sacred harp sing song. It's uh, b- these are hymns from the early days of the U.S., hmm. maybe before the Revolution. Even. So you were using them as source material? Yes, and the idea was uh, that each time you sang a chorus, you added a sung echo. Uh huh. So the first time echoed once and then twice and so forth. They actually echo up to about seven times. It's quite hypnotic. So how does something like that evolve? You, you read something about a piece of music and you say, hey, I want to try that? Well, in this case, um, it was more or less my love of Sacred Heart songs, but I, I was looking for ways for people to find refreshing and new ways of singing traditional things. I was working as a resident composer at Washington Square Methodist Church. The Reverend Paul Abels had invited me to produce material uh, for all parts of the church church here and do a concert series, uh, which we did with the New Wilderness Preservation Band. And uh, this was a participatory scheme. Anyone could figure this out. If you knew the hymn, then the whole congregation could take the trip of doubling each note, singing three times, and so forth. My idea was to create explorations that could be done by ear and not necessarily by uh, professional musicians. So this is really like creating art song, but haven't you also created feature film soundtracks? Yes, I have. I certainly have. And uh, movies... Um, and thir- and you and the music and art for the the thirteen parts of Time Life's America series. Yeah, I produced the whole thing in my studio when I had my studio at West End Avenue. I recorded the announcer, I recorded the the sound design and uh, the music. Just assembled the whole thing. So you're all over the place musically. Is that part of the fun? I, for you? I mean, so many people find themselves in a box. Well, I think that I like the idea. Uh, of being able to do many different parts of a project and then to collaborate with others on the parts that I can't do. So I get a, whether it's a band where I can do some parts of the music and others do others and productions, it's a way of collaborating. And uh, since I, in, I found over and over again being a uh, producer and knowing how to get something done and distributed and heard made it possible then to make all sorts of interesting things in my kitchen. Mm. Well, you've worn many hats musically, <laughs> but when you're outside, you wear mostly a bowler. Isn't that true? Is that your way of honoring your father? It, it is. I guess you know the story that uh, my father and I had a somewhat distant relationship until the last couple Why of months. Why would that be? Life. He was a psychiatrist. I would have thought that he would have been uh, aware of the importance of developing a relationship with your child. Well, I think that the way he put it was that I was born in 42, while he, uh, and he left a month later. March of 42 to join the services so he was in the military and when he came back uh, my sister got born and then two brothers and being a family man he was just embedded in 
taking care of us. And he just, we just never got, I was being the first kid, he, he, he said to me, he didn't know what to do. He didn't know me. <laughs> he just moving forward in his life. So, but the last three months of his life were, were, were just marvelous. Um, he took me with him to, for a physical examination at Passaic General Hospital. And uh, how old was he at the time? Let's see, uh, I guess, was in 1983. Oh, so the and, both uh, of you were already adults. Yes, he was born in 20. He was born in 1912, mm-hmm. so he was just 70. But he heard at that meeting where he took me along that he was had only a few months to live, huh. and somehow I think he sensed that he was going to get some bad news, and I think that's because he'd never asked me to come to a hospital with him ever. <laughs> and uh, and after that, we had a, a wonderful time. Uh, the um, he said, I don't know what to do. It's going to end all so soon. I said, well, you've got to make the most of every day. Look, you've got a wonderful family. Let's all just hang out and make every day important. I've always wondered uh, about what it would be like to grow up the child of psychotherapists or psychiatrists because it's their job <laughs> to interpret everything <laughs> that is said. Uh, you can feel very self-conscious, can't you? Is that why you wound up in music and not in medicine or the sciences? Well, I think uh, I came up in the sciences, and uh, I always loved loved medicine. I uh, had even spent a summer working in the morgue, Passaic General Hospital. Uh, oh, wow. Because uh, cause I, what I've heard about was you said that you're interested in sounds began at birth, although... I would think that's true for anyone who can hear, but you mean in a different way? Well, I think that those are two separate subjects. First of all, I do have a deep interest in sound, and I felt that I could do a better job as a full-time composer and musician uh, than if I made it my hobby. And so if I was going to, and I didn't want to be a half-assed physician, so that was more or less a decision about where I could better spend my time. I also thought that I had limitations in what I could give to other people being, you know, egotistical and, and self-possessed. <laughs> well, you were already into music when you were very young. When you were 11, did you become the official bugler at a Boy Scouts camp? It's true, I did. <laughs> that, that got me into... So uh, trumpet was your first instrument? Trumpet was, yes. <laughs> and then at 15, weren't you already introducing chance, surprise, interruption, odd meter, and humor into the things that you were creating? It's absolutely true. Uh, it was important to me to be able to uh, have those good spirits. I arranged uh, for the, uh, uh, the orchestra at the National Music Camp in Interlochen, Michigan, at a certain time. Uh, when George Wilson was conducting us, it was a little after 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We were rehearsing for everybody in the orchestra to belch and shift in their chair and stop playing. And uh, we did, and he just laughed. <clears throat> Wilson loved it. And I, I think at that point on, I was, uh, I w- I was set loose. Yeah. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised that you studied with Stefan Volpe. No, well, he was a man of many, many flavors, first of all. Uh, unconventional works, for sure. Unconventional works. But he trained people from every sector. Elmer Bernstein, he always said, was his best student. Really? Yeah. 
And you were number two, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought it was Ralph Shapey or Charles Warrenen. <laughs> uh, should we listen to another composition? Yeah, maybe we can. Uh, half of my work is recomposing, doing mm -hmm. things with existing works, as you heard with the Sacred Heart Camp. So uh, I've been, I'm working on the music with Peter Schumann for the Bread and Puppet Circus this summer. And okay. they, they do day-long uh, Sunday events in which there's a, the circus itself, which is a political circus with puppets and songs, much, pretty much in one location in the gravel pit up in Glover, Vermont. And then they do a pageant which goes from location to location, a processional event, each taking advantage of local, uh, you know, the local acoustics and the trees and the beautiful vision of the sky. And so I uh, started out working on a piece for them uh, years ago with, a, with, with, with some settings uh, of the prayer for Brother Son, which he took over and made part of the his performance. Then I performed in 95 with Rothenberg and Makota Oda uh, on the theme of the bomb and how um, that was related to, to, to the, uh, the Holocaust. And we performed that. Actually, it turns out that it's available on, on video. So for those of you looking for 1995, uh, Rothenberg, Morrow, and Oda. So, but this summer, Peter and I are doing pieces based on Beethoven. Our original idea was a Beethoven quartet on a hay wagon and <laughs> a Beethoven trio on a hay wagon. And Why a hay wagon? Because they could be brought by animals very quietly around on a field where performance was and the wind would change the acoustics. But we felt that that was too, too solemn and we should be doing something a little different. So I've, at Peter's suggestion, created a transformation of the... Uh, piece which is called the uh, Grossa Fuga, which Beethoven wrote when he was deaf, a year before he died. And I thought that his mind must be wandering. <laughs> and so the I stretched the music in various ways. So I have a sample here of Beethoven uh, with, with some Morrow touches. <laughs> we perform with puppets.
Another composition from Charlie Morrow. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Charlie? Sure. This is um, a, a stretched version of Beethoven's um, Grossa Fuga, which he wrote oh. when he was deaf. Yeah, you for, said that, yeah. Uh, I've kept on imagining. So you completed it for him? Um, well, it was complete, but it yeah, let's say now it's got other mm. completions, like that screaming loud note at the end of the mm. <laughs> the sample. And I got lots of really deep, slow, slow sections like underwater. No. Now, uh, I mentioned at the beginning that you have written our theme music, both our opening theme and our closing theme, and we only play small excerpts from them. So um, tell us a bit about them. They, well, look, tell us about the one that we use as a closing theme. Well, this is the, um, they're all done by uh, Buster Williams and his band, and we did mm. an al- group of albums for the medical world. There were jazz music for doctors, and it had to be within a certain stylistic range it couldn't be too far out or it couldn't be too far in and this was the sweet spot and i was able to do this with buster who did the arrangements and booked a spectacular spectacular band so uh, i'd say let it roll well first of all let me thank you for being here are you going to be in town much longer i'm going to be in town till uh, another day and a half and then you go back to helsinki no i go back to barton vermont okay and to prepare with Peter Schumann, the event for the eight Sundays. There are eight Sundays with this Beethoven music and the Bread and Puppet Circus, so that'll start July 9th for eight different Sundays, and they're all afternoon events, and they all wind up with the string quartet at the end. Okay. Thank you so much, Charlie Morrow. Okay.
Wonderful music that Charlie Morrow has allowed us to use on our show. And I thank him so much for that. But that does bring us to the end of our show. If you'd like to check out more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access our archive of over 800 shows at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And if you'd like to reach me directly, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Right now, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times. So we're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. And we hope that you'll consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $5, $10, $15, $20, $25 a month. It allows us to plan for the future, and we would be happy to send a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, or, uh, and that allows us to be completely free speech radio. Uh, again, the number... 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org to help support independent radio. New BAI is the only station on the New York dial that is 100% listener supported. And don't forget to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. From all of us at the station, we thank you. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again on Thursday when Timothy Egan will discuss his book about the Ku Klux Klan called A Fever in the Heartland. We'll see you then. 